Amidst the volumes of illustrative material that I have stored up over the many years of being a preacher and teacher, I have one particular file that is simply labeled blindness. It is filled with quips and quotations and anecdotes that illustrate the sometimes comical, sometimes tragic capacity of human beings to misread reality, to miss the uh, verities right in front of them, and to do so with an almost amazing self-assurance at times. For example, an eloquent American authority once declared that the introduction of the railroad would certainly require the construction of many insane asylums, since people would surely be driven mad at the very sight of these huge locomotives rushing by. A group of German experts concurred in this estimation. They declared that if trains moved at the frightful speed of 15 miles per hour, as some said they would, then passengers would certainly suffer from terrible nosebleeds and likely suffocate when traveling through tunnels. In the year 1870, a speaker addressing an assembly of Indiana Methodists offered a different perspective on transportation. He said, I believe we are coming into a time, remember 1870, we're coming into a time of great inventions when men will fly through the air like birds. That is heresy, exclaimed the presiding bishop at this gathering of Methodists. God has reserved flight for the angels alone. We will have no such talk here. And Bishop Wright of the Methodist Church then went home and told his two sons, Wilbur and Orville, how things would always be. In 1899, Charles Duell, the director of the United States Patent Office, petitioned the President of the United States for the closure of his department. Why? I quote him, everything that can be invented has been invented. In 1923, Robert Milliken, a Nobel Prize winner in physics, declared, and I quote, there is no likelihood that man can ever tap the power of the atom, 1923. It's amazing, isn't it, how even very intelligent people, people of tremendous personal gifts and responsibilities, will set limits upon the possible. I've always been amused by the statement made in 1927 by the head of Warner Brothers Motion Pictures. Who the heck wants to hear actors talk, he asked. That very same year, the prominent all-star baseball player, Tris Speaker, said this of a fellow baseball player who had given up pitching in order to concentrate on batting. I tell you, Babe Ruth is making a big mistake, concentrating on batting. My favorite statement, however, is the one that was uh, memorialized in an engraved plaque over the mantelpiece of a mansion. The mansion was built by the Beatles' John Lennon for his mother near the Cliffs of Dover. He had heard these particular words from his mother almost daily while growing up, so he put it on the plaque over the mantelpiece of the home, and the words were, playing the guitar and singing is fine, John, but you'll never make a living doing it.
how amazing it is how even very intelligent, capable people set limits on the possible. I know that I am prone to doing this myself at times. I am prone to being every bit as blind to the possibilities inherent in the people or the situations that I face in life as any of those people in the blindness file that I keep at home. I know I can easily come to see the glass as half empty or quickly obsess on the faults and the flaws of others or of particular arrangements. But in my very clearest moments, I don't want to be that way. I, just to tell you the truth, I, I just pray that by the end of my journey in life, I will not be remembered as the guy who always saw the empty part, uh, who always saw the limits and the difficulties and the flaws. I would much rather be one of those visionary people that shape environments, <laughs> wouldn't you? I'm one of those people that just see the potential and the possibilities that other people seem to miss. Is it possible, I'm asking this morning, is it really possible to learn to be a visionary instead of a naysayer in life? Is there an app for that? Well, it turns out that there is. Jesus says that he had come to be the light of the world. Jesus said that he came to this earth to help human beings see better. He came to help human beings uh, perceive life's realities and its possibilities far more clearly than they were naturally doing. Jesus went on to say that those who reflected him in their nature would also be like this. They would carry uh, out his light into the world. You, he said to his followers, followers are to be like cities built up on a hill that give light to the countryside around. You're to be like lamps set up on a stand that illuminate the room, the environment in which you're moving. You're to live in such a way that others come to see themselves and life and their God much more clearly and luminously than they would were you not there in that space as my light bearers. Your job as a disciple of Jesus Christ, in other words, my job as a follower of Jesus, is to practice the ministry of visioning. It's to practice the ministry of envisioning for people and with people and with problems. To begin to get a handle on this idea, I think of the story of the young man who came for an interview for a job as the pilot of a Mississippi River steamboat. Doubtful that such a young fellow could possibly understand the dangers of this mighty river, the interviewer asked the young applicant if he knew where the rocks were. No, sir, I don't, the applicant replied. And the interviewer cleared his throat, preparing to end the discussion, but the young man went on, I've got no idea where all the rocks are, but I do know where they are not. And he got the job. How often do we approach the difficulties that we suffer in our families in our workplaces, in our social circles, 
in our political environment by looking for and sizing up the dimension and the sharpness of all the rocks in the environment. We pour our energies like few people before us, I suspect, nowadays, into fixing blame, into identifying flaws, into mulling over how bad things are in so many areas. It's not all bad that we do this. God does not call us to be naive. Uh, does not call us to be blind in the other sense, to the reality of sin, uh, of evil, and of struggle. But what might happen if we could put more of our energy into steering towards those areas where, we're, where we know there are not rocks, where there may be open water? What would happen if we envisioned life in that way? This is the approach that the Apostle Paul commands when he writes to the church at Philippi long ago. Beloved, he writes, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Paul was not a naive man. Paul had been beaten. He had been in prison. He had been challenged by falsehood. He had suffered the outrageous slings and arrows of life's misfortune. Paul was a realist in so many ways, and yet he had learned through the ministry of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in his own life to picture the possible nonetheless. And so he says, think about such things. The ministry of visioning involves picturing what is positive and perfect and doing that more frequently than you do picture that which is imperfect and negative and then making your way toward that channel, down that channel, toward the perfect, full steam ahead. Are you performing that ministry as fully as you could? The world today desperately needs fewer victims. It needs fewer people who will not take responsibility and who expect others to live life, solve life for them. The world today desperately needs fewer critics and carpers. It desperately needs more Christ-like visionaries. Do you want to know how you and I can steer toward being that kind of person? I want to suggest to you two practical measures that can enable us to live in this direction and then free you up to go and practice them, as I'll be seeking to do myself. First of all, try picturing perfection in the face of some of your present problems. Instead of focusing just on what's so dark and wrong and difficult and impossible, try picturing perfection in the face of those problems. Some years ago, I uh, sat at a Bible study weekly with a gentleman who had spent the last decade of his life studying leadership. He had done extremely well in business. He had been liberated from financial pressure And he had devoted himself for a decade to simply studying what makes uh, great influencers so successful. 
What he had found was one single attribute that linked highly effective people across a broad array of fields. Certainly there were many other commonalities and linkages, but there was one particularly luminous luminous attribute of these leaders that he identified, and it strangely had to do with the way that such people posed questions. With the way they posed questions. For years, for example... A man named Fred ran a troubled shipping business. His consuming question and concern was what's wrong with the way we're doing it. This is how he tried to repair the fact that it was not doing very well in the changing competitive world of modern day shipping. He just kept asking himself what's wrong, what's wrong with the way we're doing it. One day he stopped asking that question and he started asking instead a far more generative question. And the question was this. What would a perfect delivery system look like? He erased all the org charts, everything that had been known, all that was being practiced, and Fred Smith asked, what would a perfect delivery system look like? And as he turned on that question, the fruit of that inquiry became Federal Express. For many years, I served in a church in San Diego alongside of a woman who had dealt for many years with the pain of a terrible loss, the loss of a child, in a very tragic way, uh, even more awful than I want to go into. And the question that had dominated her for years was this one. How can life ever be the same? How can life ever be the same? Every room she entered, every experience she had was colored by the agony and the darkness of the loss she had suffered. How can life ever be the same? And then one week, I encountered her in the church building with the sparkle of hope in her eyes I had not seen for a very, very long time. And I got into a conversation with her, and I asked her, what changed? What's what's changed for you? And she said, the question. The questions changed. I began to wonder what it would look like for me to employ my experience of loss to help other people in pain. If I'm stuck with it, how can I use it? That became her grand obsession. And it birthed a new life for her and a new ministry that assisted other people in finding new life. Maybe yours will be a different quest. Maybe your question is, what would a volunteer job look like that perfectly used my gifts or perfectly jive with my passion? What would it look like for me to be the perfect friend to those people who, frankly, aren't being the perfect friend to me. What would it look like for me to do that? How could I live toward that? What would my marriage look like if it were perfectly loving? What would be going on? How would the people be behaving 
if it was perfect? And how can I begin to do that unilaterally till my spouse comes around? Or what would be the characteristics of a perfectly loving relationship with my kids? Or what would be the the contours and the rhythms of of a household that was perfectly aligned towards health and helpfulness and mutuality? These are visionary questions. These are the questions that visionaries uh, typically ask. One of the things that most impresses me about the ministry of Jesus was how much of his ministry involved the active visioning of perfection. Go back and read the Gospels again with this particular lens, and and you'll see amply what I'm talking about. Jesus was always picturing perfection. (laughs) Uh, He spent far more of his time imagining perfection for people than naming faults and flaws in in situations or people. And, And he did it with this particular phrase. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of God is like. Perfection is like this, is what he was saying. The kingdom of heaven is like a banquet table to which everybody was invited, no matter how dirty or broken down they were. The kingdom of heaven is like a shepherd that went out in search of a lost sheep, or like a woman who got down on her knees amidst the dust bunnies and searched around for that one lost coin. The kingdom of heaven is like a Samaritan who actually cared for a Jew and met him in a ditch and patched him up. The kingdom of heaven, perfection, is like this. And the picture was so beautiful, so compelling, that more and more people began to steer towards that part of life's river. Jesus spoke as if the very envisioning of God's perfect will had the power to bring it into being on this earth, on earth as it is in heaven. And it does. The word of God, the vision of God, changes reality. So forget the rocks for a while is what I'm trying to say to you. I think the Bible is saying to you, forget the rocks for a while. I know they're always there. I know they have to be reckoned with, but don't make them your magnificent obsession. Instead, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, says Paul, think about such things. Think more about such things. Start picturing the perfect solution instead of fixing on the painful problem and watch how God flows the river of your life toward the good. Then try one more thing. Try picturing perfection in the face of some of the difficult people in your life too. Not just the problems, but the people. On that subject, I remember the teacher who once noted on a child's report card, we just got ours at home, that he was very adept in the creative use of visual aids for learning. That was the quotation. Very adept, creative use, visual aids for learning. And curious about the comment, the boy's father actually phoned the teacher and said, 
what does that statement mean? And the instructor replied, it means he copies from the kid in the next seat. (laughs) I'm glad we're having this conversation, teacher said. Let me be very clear about this. I'm not being Pollyanna here. To picture perfection in another human being does not mean that we sugarcoat or ignore altogether their flaws. It does not mean that we think human beings are capable of being perfect in the sense that Jesus was just by thinking positively about them. It simply means having the vision to see that one of the best ways to deal with somebody's flaws, one of the best ways to encourage their strengths, one of the best ways to actually get to the place where you could actually have a meaningful, helpful conversation about the things that aren't quite so right, is by picturing in them and for them a more perfect possibility. What would happen if you had a vision like this for one of the people within your reach? Think of somebody with whom you're struggling. What if you deliberately took your eyes off of the rough edges, the annoying habits, the obvious limitations of his or her character and past, And what if you instead made it your business to thankfully name every day at least one thing in him or her that reminded you even faintly, even faintly, of the perfection in which Jesus is clothed? What if you did that every day? Maybe it's a talent they have. Maybe it's a fruit of the Spirit in them. Maybe it's an act of kindness that you will see and catch them doing right. I love the way the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible puts Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is anything worthy of praise. Do you, do you, are you catching Paul's sentiment here? He's saying, find it, find it, find it, whatever, whatever, whatever. Look for it, look for it, whatever. If there's anything worthy of praise, think about These things. Think about these things. Affirm these things. Celebrate, advance these things. And see if their assets do not outgrow their liabilities. And then think with me on this final story as it brings us close to home. A gangly young woman once succeeded in earning a bit part in a Baltimore theater production, hoping to secure the nicest possible clothes to show off her talent. The would-be actress arrived at the theater an hour early on costuming day, only to find that the veterans and everybody else was more experienced than she had gotten there a whole lot earlier, and they had secured all of the good costumes leaving only the worst possible choices for her, the novice. The only thing left was a ragged dress that was several inches too short and far too tight around the collar, and she was just devastated. And she just stood there, and she was musing over her misfortune. When she was startled by a voice, and she looked up to see one of the other actresses who was wearing the most beautiful dress of all. It was just perfect. 
And the radiant woman reached behind her neck and undid the collar and began to take it off and said to the young actress, Here, why don't you take my costume? I arrived early today. I got the very best one. But I can't take yours, said the younger woman. Sure you can, the older woman said. It's perfect on you. And I think you're going to be a big star someday, and I'd like to help you get there. Take it. Take it. And with tears of gratitude welling up in her eyes, young Catherine Hepburn simply said, Thank you. Here. Here, says Jesus to you. Take my love. Take my life. Take my character. Take my way of being with people and problems. Take it. It'll be perfect on you. But we can't. But we can't, we say to him. And the master says, sure you can. Sure you can. You're going to be a great disciple one day. And I'd like to help you get there. And these clothes of character that he gives us, they're they're still loose-fitting on us. It's going to take a lifetime to grow into his way of seeing and being in the world. But somebody has that kind of vision for you. That that master has that kind of vision, even for guys like me. He is somebody who pictures the perfect possibilities and all of the problems that you have. He is someone who pictures the perfect potentialities in all of the people that you know. So carry his vision with you this week. Take that vision with you this week, won't you? Because it's the antidote to blindness. It is like light for this needy world. In a world so desperately in need of faith, hope, and love, the vision that Jesus has of what's possible with God is the app for that. Please pray with me. Lord God, down through the centuries, you have raised up saints from sinners. You have raised up saints from sinners. And you've endowed them with the vision to see what the world often misses. You are the author and the perfecter of our faith, Lord.
So fix our eyes upon Jesus. Fix our eyes upon what is perfect, God, that we might be impassioned to pursue it in the midst of trouble, to name its nature and source wherever we see it in others, and to thereby be bearers of that light which no darkness shall finally overcome. For this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.